0: This is episode number 72, and I'm Sheldon Grant from Panoramic Outdoors. Today we got a wicked guest, Adam Schultz. If you've never heard of him, I'd go and look him up up right now. He's an author of quite a few different books, kind of like a modern-day explorer and a Canadian at the best. So check him out and stay tuned for a little podcast interview with him. But before we get started, I'd like to say a big thank you and shout-out to Pit Barrel Cookers or Pit Barrel Barbecues. If you're an avid listener to our podcast, you would probably understand by now that they're a huge supporter and sponsor of the podcast. And we can't do a lot of things without them. So a huge thank you to them. Um, If you're looking to get into the barbecue world, smoking world, I would highly suggest checking out Pitboro Barbecues. They're one of the best upright barrel systems that you can find. Uh, We've been cooking with them for probably over a year now. They're close to a year, I think. And we've kind of perfected the traditional meats as in beef and chicken, ribs, whatever. And now we're getting into other things like venison sausage, duck legs, you name it. We're hitting it. And uh, we really enjoy it. If you want to get into one, check out pitbarrelcooker.com. And for 500 bucks, you can get yourself a wicked barbecue. If you're in the United States, it's free shipping. And in Canada, there's a map. And it'll show you all the places where you can pick one up across the country. So check that out, www.pitbarrelcooker.com. And I'd like to also say, before we get going here, <clears throat> a huge uh, thank you to everyone that's been listening. Uh, with the COVID times, we got to do everything remote, so things kind of get a little bit awkward with, with it when it comes to audio and the quality. So uh, we do apologize for some of the quality issues, um, but thanks for always tuning in, supporting us, and liking and sharing, and even commenting on your on your podcast platforms. It goes a long way. And we appreciate it. To get going today, it's going to be myself and my good friend, Chase Drylick, co-hosting with me tonight. Chase, what's going on over there?
1: Well, you know, what's going on on my end is uh, just really, its it's been a weird week, man. It's been really mild out. And uh, I am looking forward to hitting the ice tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to go fishing and hopefully get the boys out. And uh, they haven't been out ice fishing yet this year. Daxy hasn't even been out ice fishing at all. And uh, so tomorrow's supposed to be a really great day. No wind. Really warm. Uh, ice is thick enough to drive the old pickup truck out there. and to pound some holes and hopefully find a couple of Walters to, to put on the ice. Um, other than that, man, pretty ops normal. What about you?
0: What is what do you uh use them for bait on lake winnipeg are you using live minnows or what What are you using over there
1: i'm just going to go out uh with some frozen minnows and uh probably won't run one dead stick and uh one just jig one uh we'll see how much mayhem it's going to be with the children out there because uh deck definitely likes to get his hands in there and dax pretty much destroys everything he touches uh but i'll probably be running you know a usual jig and a minnow or uh a spoon um a company uh that runs a lot of gear out west lighthouse lures actually uh gave us a bunch of gear and tristan nailed a nice walleye on one of their spoons so i uh, might try some of that gear out we'll see what happens we'll see what the day brings i I'm, oh interesting
0: I'm... my gear must have got lost in the mail again <laughs> i got i got lots here for you if you want <laughs> That's cool. Um, I was actually going to ask you, normally what we did in uh, 2020, we did like around what do we do uh, in the jukebox, what's on tap and uh, what's on the grill to kind of make some conversation on what we're doing lately. But I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to ask you one simple question, and I know you're always cooking some fabulous meals. What's something that you've done lately that uh, you need to brag about?
1: Something that I've done lately that I need to brag about. That's a good question. Uh, well, I think... The uh, the smoked sausages that we that I did up there, we did a bunch of uh, pepperoni uh, sausages and sticks, and and uh, I I did a bunch of them in smoked a bunch of them in the in the pit barrel, and I wasn't too sure how how it was gonna go, but um, I uh, kind of had it dialed in, man. That thing was just sitting right at like one eighty two hundred for a solid like two three four hours kind of thing, and with like minimal minimal adjusting like i had that it was easier for me to set that thing up than it was my brother's uh, propane smoker so that was that was pretty cool um what i'm excited about here and this is i'm kind of going off the wild game path but uh i got this beef tenderloin and i haven't had a beef tenderloin in years in the freezer and i'm going to chop that sucker up into nice little steaks wrap them in bacon and put them on the pit barrel grab like some some shrimp or something and, uh, and do them up on there, and I I can't, I'm I'm really looking forward to that date, so that's kind of what I what got going on. What do you what do with,
0: yeah, what do you do with that, do you put it like low and slow when you're wrapping in bacon, or do you try to like get a seat, like how would you do that?
1: I think I am going to probably try and smoke it for a bit, low and slow, so probably around that like 220 to 260 kind of area, and then depending on how it's looking that might amp it up and try and get a bit better of a sear
0: on it yeah kind of like a reverse sear or whatever yeah no that's cool i've i haven't really been doing too many cool things in the kitchen to be very honest with you but i will tell you about what's on tap for me was on new year's eve i went out um you know like you can't go to the bars or restaurants do whatever so i was kind of like in my house and my roommate was here as well Uh, so we decided to order some chicken wings from a local restaurant and some sushi and drink some beers and play some cards. And <laughs> I ended up going to the liquor, liquor store there, or the beer vendor. And I picked up a 12 of Corona. And when I was, like, kind of walking by the one cooler, I looked and there was an eight-pack of Natty Lights. And I always, like, listen to people in the States, like, just love Natty Lights. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to buy a pack of these because I've never tried one. So I ended up going home and I crushed the whole eight-pack in, like, an hour and a half, man. Like, they just, it was just like I was in college again. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And then I ended up actually finishing the other case of beer too. I was ten out of ten on New Year's, but that's okay too. I <laughs> so, guess.
1: so were the natty lights like uh like uh typical American watered down beer or were they uh were they pretty good?
0: In a way it was kind of like a Bud Light, you know, it's a lighter beer and you can just yeah, just drink away and <sighs> Yeah, and I sure felt it the next morning, but the cool thing about the next morning was I got into that freaking show Yellowstone, and uh, so that's how I spent most of my day, and the next day being hungover.
1: Oh man, that, that show has got me hooked. I'm going on a deep dive on that sucker. It's, it's pretty crazy. Oh, <laughs> You've been ordering, been looking at cowboy hats online lately, or what? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Cowboy hats, get some fresh <laughs> boots, maybe some like trench coats, slicks, I think yeah. they call I bet them. You
0: I bet you those boys down in Yellowstone are eating a little bit of Cowboys caviar.
1: Man, if they aren't, they're definitely missing out because uh, I know everyone on uh, listening to our podcast here, I'm sure you've heard it here before, but we're going to say it again. Cowboys caviar is some of the best stuff that uh, that uh, we've ever had as far as beef jerky goes. And It's funny because I was looking at uh, their Instagram post the other day, and our buddy Steve Pierre there um Pereira I think actually that's how you say it sorry Steve was uh saying that the stuff doesn't last long in his place if he doesn't have it hidden because his kids end up getting into it and uh I have a very similar experience here at my my home and the jerky is like uh good enough that the kids really enjoy it so it's kind of a win-win because the kids like it I like it I can sell it to Jody's saying like wow you know or everyone eats it in the house And, uh, yeah, so I can always have a little bit of Cowboy Caviar kicking around. They're obviously big supporters of this podcast, so we want to say thank you to them. If you are interested in finding some Cowboys Caviar, you can go onto their website, CowboysCaviar.com, and order directly. Or, if you want, uh, they are in a lot of local retailers around the province here in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. And uh, they are expanding their their inventory constantly. So, check them out. They also have this really really interesting fundraising system where if you remember back in the day, anyways, back in my day when I was in like school, we used to sell like chocolate-covered almonds. Well, you can sell Cowboys Caviar the same way. So, they will give you a uh, a discount on the product and you sell it for a certain price and you keep whatever uh money you sell it for there so i think uh what what's the number there sheldon about 40 percent or something like that
0: yeah something like that you have to go on the website and check it out um can't remember that number off the top of my head but yeah cowboyscaviar.com check them out the fundraiser um but back to talking a little bit of um hunting and fishing with you i i don't know if you've seen on facebook in the news or The hunting news, hunting world, but Excalibur came out with a new crossbow, which looks like a double-barreled crossbow. And if anyone that's listening that hasn't um, checked uh, or checked it out or seen it on the news or whatever, it's basically like a double-limb, two-string, two-bolt crossbow. And I guess my question for you tonight, Chase, is what do you think of that? I know, like on Facebook, there's some rumblings about you know it not being it getting away from. You know the crossbow world—it's it's way too much. A lot of people love it. A lot of people are starting to hate it. What do you think?
1: That's a good question, man. There's there's always that 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 divide among outdoorsmen, right? Like there's you obviously have the traditional guys, and you always have the the super techie guys that are into everything um, new that comes out, and it's it's kind of like where do you draw that line, right? Uh, my personal thoughts on it are, is like, I guess if there's like a, it, you can run in, in like a regular rifle season. Um, I'm not sure something like that should be run in like an archery season or even like a crossbow season because like the, there's a huge advantage there for having that, that second, second arrow coming out. And it, it almost is taken away from the whole archery aspect of, uh, of the game there.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, and I know like a lot of people, <clears throat> they, they they have a crossbow for for hunting, say in an archery season because of a uh, either like a disability or bad shoulder, bad back, or what have you, right? So to have that double bolt or double arrow slinging around, I mean, yeah, of course it's a a little bit of an advantage, or even more of an advantage. Um, the things that I kind of think about, you know, is in a way, it's like, well, who cares? Like, if you're not going to run it, why does why does it matter to anybody else? Um, it seems like like when it comes to hunting, there's so much competition between who shot a bigger deer. But like, really, why does that even matter? Like, if you're shooting a deer, harvesting a deer, um, that should be your main goal. And you know, sometimes it does take two shots. I'm not going to lie. Like, even in archery season, and you got to put you know, finish off the finish off the job with the second arrow. And um, not only that, I, I noticed um, Richie Caseman, said something on Facebook saying like, yeah, it'd be nice, you know, if a coyote ran by or whatever. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good advantages to it. At the same time, I I agree with you. I don't think it should be in an archery season tool. I mean, I think it's kind of cool though. Like I have mixed feelings, I guess, but it kind of brings me to my, to my next point. I was going to ask you, there's also some stuff on the fishing pages about technology and about fishing. And I think this kind of uh, intertwines with the double barreled uh, crossbow. But do you think that there's a point in fishing where it's like we we have such an advantage now over the fish that it's like not even really fishing, and then maybe that there should be some sort of you know in certain bodies of water looking at not allowing technology.
1: Actually, that, that's a good point, man, and it's a really I like your angle there on it, where where you you say like certain bodies of water and not not allowing it, and the the huge thing that. That boggles my mind, and that really, really like takes a massive advantage of technology on the fish is like a system like panoptics. and it's it's an amazing tool. And uh, I guess like for ice fishing, I guess it's it's not as lethal, we'll say. <laughs> but man, if you if you got one of those suckers hooked up to a boat, you could just pretty much cruise the shoreline until you find a fish and start casting and and target that that fish and it's definitely like taken away from the actual game of fishing in general and i don't even know how to describe it but it's it'd be it'd be hard pressed to like like where do you set that limit right like within with with the in the hunting industry now what Boone and crockett has done is removed any uh entries that that have been entered into the boon and crockett system that the animal has been seen or 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 taking photos of on the like cellular uh, trail cameras. Right. So obviously technology in some senses is getting to that, to that spot where uh, some of these industries have to put some sort of limitation on it. But I, I would certainly like to see um, a sort of uh, limitation to some of those fishing technologies in certain bodies of water, I think would be a fantastic idea or maybe not, limiting the the electronic itself but limiting the catch and the keep from it if you're gonna have that advantage yeah. out there
0: yeah there's a lot of things too like, <clears> that I've been thinking about it a little bit and um, I'm all for technology like I, I like te- technology not necessarily I use it all like I don't even have a flasher not not saying I wouldn't buy one I've been kind of looking for one for the last little while um, so obviously technology is there and I kind of like think of it as hunting like we have rules in place in manitoba especially like when it comes to drones like we can't use drones you know because it takes a total advantage over over wildlife let's say and, you know and then i start thinking about the pen optics and other systems that they're using and it's just like yeah like I, I kind of see where people are kind of getting a little you know butt hurt about certain technologies you know i also start thinking about 25 years ago 30 years ago when our our dads and our uncles and everyone else went out fishing and it wasn't You know, they didn't have that type of technology. They actually had to look for the fish. And only that, like, it it created a lot of conversations in the coffee shops and everywhere else. Like, where are you fishing? What are you doing? And nowadays, it's just like we have the technology where we can get to where we want on a quad. We can put the technology into the water where we can keep these spots by ourselves. And then people aren't even telling each other stories anymore. Like, there's the fish stories are just, like, non-existent. It's just like, oh, man, I caught a 30-inch walleye. Oh, right on. See ya. Like, that's it. Like Yeah. There's there's no great story. There's not, no story about like, oh, yeah, we plunked 300 holes until we found them. And, you know, th- that stuff is kind of like non-existent. And I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of ter- – we talk about a lot of tradition and storytelling and stuff around the campfire when it comes to hunting. And I think we're starting to lose it little by little with fishing as well. But it just doesn't get talked about, I guess, in, a, in certain ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're certainly losing some of that with technology. Um, that's a, that's a interesting point too, because with the mapping technologies and everything like that, like your secret spot ain't so secret no more when, when anybody can just whistle out there and and map and you know, every, every, there's so much available online now, which I mean, helps me out when I go to travel to a new area for sure. So, I mean, like hard to complain about it, right? But it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a different world out there. And it it was funny because that really relates to some thoughts I was having throughout this podcast when we were talking to Adam too. And he got started kind of in the adventure world when he was like 13 years old, he said, going on solo adventures. And my first thought was, man, this guy is like ripping out there before like the prime time of like YouTube and everything like that. And like, what was he using for resources? when uh when he was hitting the woods and that's one question that never really came up and i wanted to ask him but um you know kudos to him for for doing all that stuff before everything was available at your fingertips pretty much you know what i mean
0: yeah yeah for sure and that was the other thing too is like i went sturgeon fishing there a couple weeks ago and we didn't go with any type of technology and just a drill and we just plunked a bunch of holes and we just looked for places to fish, and, you know, it didn't turn out that well for me. And the stupid thing for me is that I wore, that day, I wore um, my muck locks and uh, got my feet super wet. And I ended up staying the night, overnight. And I remember going to bed, and I took off my muck locks, took off my socks. I was wearing the love socks, by the way. Threw them up on the... On the shelf, or I had this little table. Threw them up on the table and put the heater to the socks, and within an hour they're dry. The cool thing about it is that they were dry, they didn't smell, and they weren't like putting on two sheets of uh, um, sandpaper. They're super soft, like a little little puppy. <laughs> so I was like super pumped about these wool socks. And if anybody uh, has listened to our podcast before, you know wool is a huge supporter. They um, they we, we wear all their stuff and uh, leggings, shirts, socks, everything. Now when we're going outside. Chase, do you want to talk a little bit more about Wolof?
1: Yeah, definitely, man. Like it has fastly become one of my favorite pieces, articles of uh clothing, multiple articles of clothing that I wear. And it's it's like more become like a daily grommet for me where like especially in the wintertime now, man, where if I'm going outside or I'm no, I'm heading outdoors or whatever, I'll just throw on the wool love in the morning and I'm comfortable all day in that stuff and like you said, it's got that antimicrobial properties in it for for the merino wool. And uh, so you're not smelly in it, you know. It's uh, inhibiting bacterial growth. And uh, it's super warm. I was actually just talking to uh, Darren Peters there from Darren's Northern Life about it today. And uh, he was he was asking me about it. And, and I gave him my, my legit opinion on it and said, you know, I've worn wool underlayers layers pretty much my entire, uh, life pretty much in the outdoor world. And, and I can't believe how much of a difference this, this is made in my comfort levels in, uh, in colder conditions or when I'm walking and sweating and then stopping, you know, and it's, if you're not wearing wool love, you are not as comfortable as you can be in the outdoors is what I'm getting at. And, uh, you're definitely missing out in uh, enjoying your outdoor activities even more than you already are if you aren't wearing Wool Love. So if you want to check them out, go to their website, wool.love. That is wool.love. They have all kinds of bundles that you can uh, bundle and save on. So the more you buy, the more you save. And if you want to save even more, type in the code panoramic10 at checkout, and you'll get an extra 10% off there.
0: Yeah, man. And I'm super pumped that we do have wool love because we are going to be doing some winter camping this year. We finally got uh, our hands on a winter tent by Citizen Canvas. It's a bell tent. Um, I think it's about, I don't know what it is, like 200 square feet. We haven't got it yet. We're just waiting for it to come through the mail. And we're going to do some winter camping, hopefully some camping on the ice. If COVID ever apps off, we'll be able to get together and do some of these some of these things. But um, yeah, super pumped to be be winter camping. And if anybody is interested in uh, the journey, ch- check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, eventually, we're going to be throwing out some YouTube videos, uh, probably around uh, the end of March, Marchish, Marchish, sometime in March. We're going to have hopefully some videos on YouTube about our camping trip. So if you guys uh, if you guys have any tips or any advice, please drop us a line and DM us somewhere because uh, this is all new to us. But
1: Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I'm having some like, uh, real cozy thoughts of being nestled into that tent with, uh, with a good fire ripping in there and, uh, it being like minus 30 outside, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I've read some really good reviews on them and some great stories from people who are like religious winter campers. So, um, I think this is a pretty exciting
0: moment coming up in our future year. Yeah, for sure. And I have this very similar feeling, you know, like just that that sense of survival. And it's one of the things that we've talked about a lot in this episode coming up is a sense of survival and being outside, being like with nature, you know, and uh, some of the ups and downs, some of the gear, all that stuff. So please stay tuned. We've got Adam Schultz coming right at you. Well, tonight we got a great guest, Adam Schultz. Welcome to our podcast. He is um, a, an adventurer. He's a write, writer of a bunch of books or an author, I guess. More people would like to call it an author. Um, Canoeer, outdoorsman all around. Adam, thanks for coming on to our show. Oh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how we normally start these shows or these podcast episodes, I guess, is we do kind of like a five burning question for all of our guests and it's just try to get the lighter side of things. Maybe... Just lighten up the episode a little bit right off the bat. So I'm going to ask you five burning questions. You can answer them as long-winded, short-winded as you want or, you know, skip to the next one. But the first question I have is if you have one last concert you can attend, alive or dead, who would it be?
2: A concert? Yeah, man. I've never been to a concert in my entire life. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm pretty much a wooden. Like I spend all my time in the wilderness. Uh Yeah, I've never been to any kind of musical performance that I can think of. So I I really have no idea. Like, uh, you can ask me any woods question you want about trees (laughs) and plants and animals, and I'll have an answer. But that one has just completely stumped me. I like, you know, I I like to say I was social distancing before it was mainstream. So probably some sort of concert that was small, like I wouldn't want to go to like a crowd of 20,000 people, so something small and low key would be like at the country fair that would be as social as I'd want to get like if it was someone's small plane at a country fair that would be yep. okay me so there you go that's
0: a that's a good answer i mean i uh yeah that's 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 new for us there's a there's somebody that spends too much time in the woods that he does not know so that's great that's a great answer if you had
2: one last meal and with a drink what would you have oh okay my my drink i'm i like tea like i'm drinking tea right now as I'm talking to you uh that's one of the things I like in the woods. I make tea from, you know, black spruce or white pine or labrador tea or wild blueberry tea. Uh, that's something I like on my my canoe journeys, is just make wild tea. Um so I that would be my last drink would definitely be like some sort of wild tea that I just make from the woods. And my meal, I don't know what I would eat. Uh a lot of times in the wilderness, I mean, just you kind of eat whatever you find and it's just sort of food becomes fuel. To keep you going so probably not a power bar but i've always been partial to fish so i think any kind of like fresh fish is probably one of my favorite go-to meals i would say so keep it on the food topic what is your uh, favorite ration my favorite ration Hmm. well i've tried pretty much every type of protein bar and granola bar in the world um (laughs) but the problem is after fuming off of them they all start to taste the same there was this one i had i don't know if they still make it anymore but it was like three four years ago it was called like bio protein i got it from like a a, a workout kind of store and it was like these big orange looking wrappers that one i can tell you after like four months of living off protein bars it was like this bio protein i think it was a peanut butter chocolate flavor one that one seemed to taste the best at all of them so that would probably be my go-to one
0: nice we actually um did a little bit of work with, I don't know if you've heard of Gorp energy bars. They're from Manitoba here and it's all like naturally made. And we, we use them a lot uh, in our elk camp this year and yeah. they're really
2: good. Really good. But, I have heard of them. Yes, they are good. Yeah.
0: Um, my fourth question for you, if you had one dream exploration, one one
2: journey there left, where would you go? Well, if it was my last, last journey. I don't know if I go, I mean, it might just be somewhere simple like out in the uh, anywhere in the boreal forest or the Canadian subarctic because that's my favorite place in the world. I mean I love going in that black spruce and that tamarack kind of because it feels like home to me and there's just something about that landscape I find um, almost like bewitching. It's just something special about it. Uh, It gets gets into your your soul almost. So that would probably be my last journey if I knew like that's my last one. I'm not coming home. I don't think I'd want to be in some sort of crazy unfamiliar place. I'd never been before. I think I would want to go somewhere like that where I'd feel almost at peace. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is where I'm in my element. It's like my home ice advantage. Uh, that's where I most want to be. Nice.
0: And that just, that you took away my fifth question. Cause my fifth question was going to be your favorite spot in
2: Canada, but I'm thinking your answer would be kind of a duplicate of your fourth answer there. Yes. It's very hard to say. I mean, I love all of Canada. I mean, I think Canada's country in the world, is, and I've been lucky enough that I've been able to see um, so much of Canada, having done like canoe trips in all ten provinces and three territories. And it'd be rude for me to choose just one place. I mean, I've lived in a lot of different places um, around Canada, and I find that you know the the country has so much uh, so much fascinating places or fascination for me that it'd be hard to just choose one place. But anywhere with a forest, I'd be happy easily. Nice well you made it through five burning questions
0: it wasn't that bad hey
2: no i was thought i was gonna thought (laughs) you guys were really gonna grill me on that one but i uh, that wasn't too bad nice
0: yeah so actually it's it's a funny thing for anybody that's listening here is that uh, we got a hold of adam
2: uh,
0: i think it was like early december and decided to do one here in early january a podcast episode and actually how i kind of came up with the idea of even sending the email it was I like, came across his documentary on Amazon. Um, it was called Alone Across the Arctic. It was a, what was it, like a 4,000-mile journey for you from from the
2: kind of like the west side all the way heading east towards Hudson Bay? Yes, uh, kilometers, not miles, but yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. That'd be a lot longer if I did 4,000 miles, but yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what did you like do that over? 4,000 kilometers,
2: I'll just uh, walking the park, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what did you do that and you started in may
2: yes May uh to september 2017 yeah
0: right on and the other thing well, the, well before we kind of get started there's one thing that i uh, on uh you have a book it's called alone against the north it's one of the first books that i've read that you've that that i knew of yours um and one thing that you do kind of mention in there is about when you know the settlers came over and there was you know those big huge country called canada that was not explored yet and you know there's a lot of aboriginals around maybe not a lot but like two or three hundred thousand or more but there's a lot of area that needs to be explored and then you kind of like reference that to today's day about how um you know in the 50s and stuff they did a lot of the the a lot of the ways they they mapped out the country was with the with the airplane and, and photography and stuff so a lot of people have never been down some of these rivers and waterways and stuff and it really got me thinking about like when we go hunting or fishing or whatever it may be. And we get into some of these back spots. And like, for me personally, Absolutely. I, um, you know, step into a certain spot. And I, I think I'm like, Is, has anyone ever stepped in this spot, you know, compared to somewhere downtown Winnipeg and like Portage of Germain where a million people have stepped, um, long winded question, but what's that feeling like for you? when you start finding these areas where
2: you, you almost hundred percent know no one has ever been at. Oh, it's a pretty special feeling. I mean, I mean, that's to get into the high Arctic. Uh, I mean, there's a part of the high Arctic where the conditions are just so extreme, um, where the sun never rises in the winter, and uh, just brutally cold, even even cold by Manitoba standards, which is pretty cold, um, that there isn't, there isn't really any history of human activity. I mean, obviously, nobody lives uh, at the North, or even, you know, there, there's something like, I think, off the top of my head, there's over 29,000 islands in the Canadian Arctic, right? Almost 30,000 islands in the Canadian Arctic, and only like 11 are inhabited, right? <laughs> so it's almost 20 over 29,000 that are uninhabited, which is pretty amazing. And um, yeah, I mean, one of the way like, it's not the best metaphor, but it, it almost feels like being on another planet. I mean, it's the closest feeling you can get to going to planet um, is to go to a place like that, where literally you can be hundreds of miles from the next living human being it's just this intense solitude and, and isolation and i think it's a very special almost um magical feeling and it's one that's becoming rarer and rarer in our modern world every year it gets a little more crowded a little bit more interconnected and you know maybe sometime soon like maybe within this decade we'll have technology people will make a phone call from anywhere right um have be able to look at cat videos on facebook from anywhere in the world but huh. As of right now, that's still not the case. I mean, there's still those really remote places where you're truly off the grid in our world, and I think that's pretty special. I'd like to uh,
1: kind of run off that question here for a second. And, you know, you, you've you explored a tremendous area of Canada uh, over your time, and Chill and I both spent a little bit of time up north in, like, the Churchill area and northern Manitoba kind of thing. Uh, one of the the interesting things that always that I always I always enjoyed was not only just that that wilderness out there but also seeing where the history of the north kind of thing and in your uh video alone across the arctic you, you uh, come across some of these old historical sites and explore them a little bit but what my question is is what's the coolest thing that you've ever come across where you least expected to find like uh uh evidence of
2: human beings or civilization that's a good question yeah that that's a good question no i've definitely found a few weird in the middle of nowhere uh where i wasn't expecting it um maybe the weirdest was i think almost nine years ago now it was 2012 and i was um doing an expedition to this really isolated river in the hudson bay lowlands uh called the again river which i wrote about in my first book and i was portaging like in the middle of nowhere in the middle of this swamp And I hadn't seen another person for quite a number of days. And like around me, there's like, it's so isolated, right? There's, there's no sign of human activity anywhere around me. Not so much as like an old blaze in a, in a tree stump or something like that, or um, a pop can, like no litter, nothing. And all I've seen around me is this world of like ancient black spruce and tamarack and sphagnum moss and Labrador tea. And I'm almost like delirious from black fly bites and just the portaging is so exhausting. And the ground is just soft moss and I'm sinking into it with every step. And then I kind of look over my left shoulder and I see something hanging in the tree. And I, at first, I think my mind is playing tricks on me. And look, and it's like all this webbing, this canvas webbing hanging in the tree. And my first thought is it's a parachute, like a parachute. Somebody parachuted in here. And I can tell it's old. Like it, it looked like fifty, sixty years old. Like it was kind of old and rusted, and the the canvas was starting to fray. And I'm like, oh man, was this like some Air Force pilot in war? He parachuted here, and he's in the middle of nowhere. Like he landed in a swamp. And you know, I'm at first my to tell you the truth, like my first feeling was this is really eerie. It kind of felt like ghostly. Like I'm seeing this um, ghostly thing. Like maybe there's a, maybe his skeleton is nearby. Like he didn't make it out of the swamp when he parachuted in. But then when I started to look at it more closely, cause I wanted to inspect it, I thought like, no, it's, it's, it's not a parachute for a person. Um, it, it's gotta got be like small for that. It had to have been like a, a weather balloon, uh, like a weather balloon parachute or something that crashed here long ago, like probably in the 80s. And it was just never recovered. And it's, it'll, it's left like rotting away there. So that was probably one of the weirdest, most random things I ever came across like in the middle of nowhere out in the wilderness by myself. That's, that's crazy.
1: Yeah. That's, that's funny. I remember, uh, just to like speak on the point of like finding something where, where you don't expect finding things. I remember I was in this, uh, this tent camp once and I was going for a little walk around in an area that I've never been. And I seen like something shiny through the bush I almost like instantly went into some sort of stalking mode where I tried to like sneak up on this this shiny item, which ended up being this huge storage bin that these other hunters just stored their gear in. But it totally freaked me out at the start, (laughs) and I thought, you know, what else could be out here, kind of thing. And and uh, yeah, definitely caught me off guard. Yeah,
2: there's uh, see something that you're not expecting in that environment. It can be a little bit jarring. Just the the sharp contrast of like something man-made or human-made with like just the natural all around you. Like if you're in a national park or something or a provincial park, it's not as, it's not as shocking. Cause you know, like obviously there's tourists and there's campers that come here, but when you're like really remote places, hundreds of miles from anywhere, uh, that's when it's like, wow, this is really jarring. I'm, I'm totally not expecting um, to see this thing here. Then it can feel pretty weird.
0: Yeah, for sure. So did you kind of inspect it? Like did you ever figure out what it actually was or what it was for?
2: Uh, well, I was time was kind of of the essence where I was. Like I was trying to do all this heavy portaging. Um, the portage was like miles and I had to get across. So I really didn't dwell on it, but I made sure that I took a bunch of pictures of it because I thought, you know, here in the heat of the moment, I got to keep going. But I'm definitely going to be curious about this later on. So I made sure to like photograph it so I could go and research and investigate it more thoroughly and i've never really done the, that much research into it since then because it just seemed to go from one adventure to another but i i still have all those photos saved so theoretically i can i can look it up but i think when i did look at the photos later i just included that yeah it had to have been some sort of weather bloom um that crashed there but i haven't done i haven't done any really deep digging to figure out like well did it come from the geological survey or you know what 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 uh, what were the details behind it so I have not done that yet but i like to kind of have like the whole um warehouse full of these photos from expeditions so that if i'm ever like um i don't know mauled by a grizzly bear and i can't do any more, more expeditions, something to keep me occupied for the rest of my life i can i can start doing this sort of um, research and putting in together these pieces like which is another exploration so i'll have something to do when i retire i guess <laughs>
0: yeah for sure and before we get too far ahead i guess um you know by the sounds of things you've been in the in the bush and the, on the rivers and lakes forever where did it all start like how old were you when you started doing these little trips and when did it when was it like oh my god i'm gonna do this for a living because to be honest i don't think there's too many people out there who are like
2: i want to be a modern day explorer so how did that all start for you well, I was always camping. Like I was lucky that as a kid my backyard was a big forest. Like just we were surrounded by woods. There wasn't any sidewalks or street lights. So it was like forest out my bedroom window. There was forest out the front door. It was all over the place. And uh my brother and I and our dog, we would always be out in the woods with like pellet guns or we'd try to fire without matches, rubbing sticks together. It never seemed to work when we were kids. But we tried. And uh we would like make shelters and sleep in like little lean, we'd sleep under the stars. And I think that really just kind of took a a hold of my imagination. And I got so captivated by the adventure and the mystery of the forest, like what we could find out there. We might just find like a raccoon skull, but in in the eyes of a five-year-old, you've discovered like some fascinating thing. It's almost like a dinosaur skull, five-year-old's imagination. So I really got swept up in all of that. My father, he kind of encouraged us and he he would take us on like smaller camping trips and fishing trips and a thing. And then like when I was like 13, that's when I was like, I want to go alone. So that was like my first solo trip um, where I went out in the wilderness by myself. It was just for a weekend, but I thought it was a big deal as a 13 year old to go by myself and I remember that first night in the wilderness, like I didn't sleep uh, a wink because I thought black bear is going to come and eat me. And if if not a black bear, then they will be like Freddy Krueger or something is going to come and come and get me in my tent. So I just slept with like my little Swiss punch in my hand um, because I was so terrified. And that that's kind of hooked me. And I've never looked back. I mean, more than 20 years later. I'm still doing these expeditions and these ventures out in the wilderness, and I don't think I could ever get tired of it. I mean, I just love it, so it's my favorite thing. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's crazy. And like, like was there anybody that you kind of like looked up to or read a book about or any of that? Like, and I, you did mention your father and stuff, but was uh, there anyone else that kind of
2: put a little bit of influence on on your journey here? There, there was a bunch of books. I mean, I was uh, I was pretty lucky that in the eighth grade. I don't know what they teach in the eighth grade anymore, but when I was in the eighth grade, which really wasn't that long ago, I mean I'm technically a millennial. Um we read a Farley Mowat book, Lost in the Barrens. And I thought that was like the greatest book ever. <laughs> I remember getting so excited to actually go to English class because we're reading Farley mowat Lost in the Barrens, and like I was like, Oh, I love a report on this. And uh, if you don't know Lost in the Barons, like it actually takes place in northern Manitoba. And it's, it's fiction, but it's about like two young boys who are like 15 and they get lost in the wilderness to survive. And it's just a great adventure story. I've read that book like four or five times and it's such a classic um, story. So that that had a big impact as a kid in the eighth grade, getting to read that. I felt pretty special because, um, you know, a lot of books on the curriculum, they didn't really, they couldn't really relate to them. But to have that, I mean, I kind of count my lucky stars that we just got to read that book because... Um, it, definitely got, it definitely took it to the next level. It was like one thing to be going out in the woods behind my family's house, but reading that book kind of made me want to like um, go farther and do bigger journeys. And there were other books that, that I enjoyed as a kid. Um, my Mountain was another one, which is about like, a boy who runs away in the wilderness and survives by himself up on a mountain. I thought that was a really good book um, as, as well. And I read like other books as I got older into high school. Um, Gray Owl. Uh, I always thought he was a great writer, um, but a bunch of different ones. And um, yeah, that, that sort of shaped me a little as well. Thanks.
0: The funny thing is, is uh, there's a book called The Hatchet or Hatchet. Is that by
2: Farley Mowat too? Uh, No, that isn't. And I actually have never read that, but I know that book because I remember like as a kid, you know, maybe more of a high school kid, um, teenager, lots of people, they did read the hatchet and everyone raved about it and said it was like the greatest book. And I'm like, you would love this book. <laughs> I remember I was like disappointed that my class didn't read that book. Um, we were reading like something else and I was like, Oh, I wish I did. So, but the hatchet is similar. It's like another survival yeah. story. I think that one's a plane, crash. Yeah, uh, plane not, crash. yeah. Yeah. Same, same sort of thing. I mean, everyone loves those stories. Lord of the flies Castaway, right. Robinson, of Sto- those survival short- man, stories, man.
1: Lo- yeah, Boston, lost lost the barons used to be my, uh, my go-to movie
2: when I would like stay home sick from school. Oh, really? Wow. I have not seen the movie, but I remember, I do remember in like the eighth grade, they showed it in the classroom, but I don't think I was there when they would wheel in the VHS uh, TV (laughs) and play it. I haven't, is the movie good? I haven't seen it.
1: It was, uh, it was pretty good for, for its time. I think like uh, it definitely struck some, uh, some adventure uh, nerves in, uh, in my mind there. So, um, I didn't know there was a book, uh, written on it. So I, I'll definitely check that out for sure.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the book was from like the 1950s. So, uh, Father it Yeah. It's, it's very, very good. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Right on. And that's kind of, uh, bringing me to my next kind of point of this podcast episode is a, uh, a lot of these things you do alone. And by, from what I can tell, you've done a lot of, uh, uh expeditions with with partners and, and groups of people as well but like what is that thing about being alone and like you just kind of mentioned it too you had this as a 13 year old you wanted to go and do it by yourself there was more maybe it might have been like i don't know i don't know how to really explain it but being alone in the wild like what is that passion and, and not only that but like what is it like mentally i know with myself when i get you know into some of these back spots in the woods especially and you know you almost get a slight sense of being turned around being alone it, it's kind of a freaky thing you know and, and it and it runs things in your mind all the time i'm just wondering how do you deal with that and, and where does it well first of all where does it all start and then how, how do you kind of deal with that as you as you
2: progress yeah i mean i i uh, i enjoy doing trips with both other people and by myself like i kind of like a mix of both so sometimes i do shins with like one other person and that's fun i mean there's definitely an upside to having a partner there um, but then I frequently do expeditions solo as well I think in the beginning I actually wanted to go with my brother because we used to go in the woods all the time but then he wasn't as into it as I was and I was like well we should go and like you know survive and he's like nah that's boring I'd rather go do something else so then I just think I got frustrated one day as a kid said that's it I'll just do it myself like I'll be stubborn and I can just do it by myself and it seemed to be how it started and frequently like in my 20s when I was doing expeditions it was often just the case that I found that nobody else wanted to do the journey I had in mind because it's like vegetable Like you're going up into the muskegs, there's going to be black flies and mosquitoes, um, and there's no money. Of course, it's like you know, <laughs> you're not you're making no money really doing these kind of expeditions. Uh, but I was just so passionate about it; I didn't care. I just wanted to keep going. Um, so I think part of the upside there's definitely some upsides of doing it, uh, which is you will get to see a lot more wildlife. That's definitely something I've found is that alone by myself out in the wilderness for like months at a time, I'll have some pretty easy encounters with like, uh, you know, wolverines or wolves or bears or uh, just any animal from a caribou on down. They're a little less free of one person than they would be in a group. And if, you know, you're by yourself, so you're just naturally not making as much noise. You're not making as much disturbance. So it's more likely that animals come around. Um, especially if you can resist the temptation to talk to yourself and just stay quiet. Uh, so I found that that's definitely a, 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 something I've noticed, which is different traveling in a group of canoeists versus by yourself. But there's something more almost intangible, which is just um, the freedom and the simplicity, the, sh- the joy of the solitude. Like It's just the most um, liberating experience you can have to just kind of be um, you, you're completely free. You can do whatever you want. You can sleep under the stars. Um, you can <laughs> you can stop wherever you want, or if you you want to push on. I mean, there's been there's been uh, times where I've traveled all night. Like I didn't feel like stopping. I'm like it's a full moon, or I'm so far north the sun doesn't set in the summer. I'm above the Arctic, so I'm just gonna paddle all night long. And then if the you know if the fancy takes me, there, and then I'll sleep as late as I want. Move on. So that kind of freedom is 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 definitely part of the appeal as well yeah but of course there's the downside which is when you're by yourself everything is more work you can't uh you don't have paddling with you you don't have someone else lifting the canoe uh if you want to boil water you've got to go gather the water you've got to make the fire you've got to set up your tent you've got to do it all so you have to work harder but sometimes i think it's definitely worth it yeah man
1: that's going to be pretty spectacular just uh canoeing on a full moon if that's what you're doing like just in my mind usually the the calmest of the most days is at night, and I could just imagine just cruising through some glassy water with the full moon overhead it would
2: be yeah, pretty it's definitely awesome. like there's yeah, there's definitely a practical reason as well. Not only does it look magical to canoe by moonlight, but um, on you know, the big lakes, as you, as you put it, it, it's too windy during the day. Like there'll be waves and wind, so sometimes it just works out that it's better to travel by night if there's the moon. Um, because the, the wind dies down and it's calm, and you can make a better distance than you could otherwise.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the other, I guess, the other part of that question too is so like being alone. Do you find that hard at times? Where it's like mentally hard. Um, and it's and it's actually kind of funny. I wanted to say too is like you said something there a few minutes ago. When it's like oh, when you can uh, not talk to yourself when you're canoeing down the river or whatever it may be. It's funny because I I talk to myself quite a bit when I'm alone, uh, just driving in my truck. So I could imagine putting on miles in a canoe you'd want to talk or sing or do something but but where where does it kind of uh, break down when it comes to your mental health and being alone do you find it I mean refreshing it sounds like you're more kind of like surviving uh, along with living but like do you ever find yourself going crazy at times
2: no I don't think so I mean I love being I love the solitude of being in the wilderness so I would say like to me I'm actually the time of my life Um, I think if you were like alone in civilization, like you're just trapped in an apartment or your house or something, and you're by yourself, that might become problematic and mentally challenging, but because I'm in the wilderness, I'm kind of immersed in what I'm doing. And as I said, I'm having the time of my life. And plus I'm always busy. Like there's always a task, I ripped open my pants, I'm going to have to sew them at night, or I have some gear that needs repairing, or I've got to catch a fish or make a fire. There's a storm coming on or, you know, hard miles to get it. Uh, get done this morning or whatever. So, because I'm partly like I'm always busy, I'm never idle, I think mentally it's easier to handle the solitude than if you were just like stranded somewhere. Like, I think you, if you look at like, some of the old stories and people went crazy or they got cabin fever, it was usually because they were like trapped in a cabin all winter. <laughs> like, it's the winter and you're inside a little tiny, like 10 by 10 cabin. You could see that that would really start to get to you mentally. Um, but It's kind of the exact opposite. Even though I'm in the wilderness, I have all the space to roam that I could ever want. Like I can uh, wander to my heart's content. Whereas if I was trapped in one little tiny area, that might start to get um, mentally uh, very challenging pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. So I guess you really have uh, almost like daily goals set too and set accomplishments for for your tasks. And uh, there's got to be something said for maintaining your sanity too, just for um traveling into uh, new areas that you want to see and explore and and uh like i think it just just traveling into uh, some wilderness areas just for the day or something you know you're always engaged and stuff and you're never there's never like much boredom there unless you're traveling across like a flat ass prairie somewhere that you've seen everything already pretty much
2: yeah and i think even in the fine cool stuff um all over the place and like this summer i did a couple expeditions but i also spent some time just like um camping in the middle of the uh, middle of boreal forest like way out in the middle of nowhere like 500 kilometers from the nearest road <laughs> i canoed out there in the nice same spot for like a week and i actually was working on my book out there like i just you know i was having a great time like just solid by the fire every day uh animals would come around me there was like a, a wolf nearby and Um, I would just write in my journal and be like, This is great. Like, I'm getting a lot of good material, which was actually about like wilderness legends and stuff. And it was like kind of a really relaxing place. Like, sometimes I find the modern world is too distracting with like media and the news and everything that's going on to be hard to ever focus or concentrate. So, I also like that element that I don't have any distractions. I don't have to, to worry about emails or what's on the news or social media. I can just be completely. Um, free of any outside distraction and i can focus on what i want to focus on and i enjoy it as well and
0: you also you're mentioning like the animals and like getting up close and personal with some of them uh you probably get the question about bears all the time but my question would be the muskox uh on your on your trip across uh, the arctic what were they like and and i know you've described them kind of as being um you know like a northern buffalo or or whatever but those, those
2: look super cool but they're not as big as 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 you think they are right like they're a little bit smaller are they not yes I mean, they're not as big as bison i mean bison are just massive so <laughs> i guess that's that doesn't say too much um but they they weigh like uh 500 pounds they don't they partly i mean they're they're obviously big by any conventional standard but they're not as big as they look because they have so much uh, on them or, or, their hair is like really shaggy Whereas if you actually like were to pin one down and, and get a pair of shears and shave it off, um, it would look a lot smaller once you got all its fur off of it because obviously they live in the Arctic, so they have a lot of thick fur. And if you could shave it off, they would seem smaller than they are, but they're still pretty big. It's not like it's like you want, you wouldn't want one charging into you or, or galloping through your tent, um, but they're not as big as the bison you would see on the planes, um, but they're still big. Yeah, absolutely. Big horns and whatnot.
0: And what were they like when you encountered them? Were they aggressive or they were just, or were they trying to figure out if you were like a small Sasquatch or like, I don't know. Like what was that encounter like with them?
2: Well, if you would asked me like in 20, if you would asked me in the spring of 2017, what mock socks were like, because I had encountered them in the Arctic before on canoe trips, I would say they were just like gentle giants that they would never cost you any harm. And that they were just kind of like cows, like they just wanted to graze on the tundra, but they otherwise wouldn't really pay any attention. And I would, I've been like, I would sometimes with it, be within almost five feet of them. Like there was one time I was way up in the Arctic Islands, like way, like 500 kilometers north of the Northwest Passage up on V Count Melville Sound. And I was trying to map a river up there. And it was like one day it was like really foggy. Like there was this thick mist and it, it just smothered everything. You couldn't see more than three feet. Feet in any trip, and I had this portage to do across the Arctic tundra, and navigating was a little bit different or difficult with all the fog. And I remember I was like um, carrying the canoe, and I couldn't see anything because of how misty it was. And then, like out of this mist, out of this fog, like something out of a horror movie, um, this mox ox just comes out of nowhere, and it's like five feet away from me, and it was just grazing. But he couldn't see me, and I couldn't see him because of how thick the fog was. And it was a little bit freaky to have that big animal right there. But he didn't do anything threatening. He just kind of looked at me and was shocked and then went back to grazing. And I just kind of continued with my portage deeper into the mist. Um, so I was always have the opinion that in any way dangerous or aggressive, like they're big animals. They couldn't do anything to you because they just, all they wanted to do was eat grass essentially or browse on Arctic willow. But now, I, now I'm not so sure about that because when I did the 4,000 kilometer journey alone across the Arctic, I probably crossed paths with about 100 of them. And of those, probably 98 were gentle giants, but the other two were very aggressive. They cost me quite a lot of stress in the middle of the night when they come snorting and galloping like some crazy enraged bull right into my tent. Um, oh. And actually, they cost me greater fear than any bear has ever done, I think. Like, I've never been more terrified than this one time on the Arctic Tundra in Nunavut where I had one just outside my tent, and it was like snorting and going crazy. And I felt like, oh, man, this this 500 500- pound beast come charging into me with its massive horns like they do have these really impressive curved horns and that kind of caused me to reevaluate my opinion and i've heard that from a few other people and i ended up looking up like videos of them charging people so every once in a while you can have like an old bull or a male that's like more aggressive and that could get a little bit worrisome if it starts charging you but most of them aren't like that most of them are just kind of like oh okay um i'm just gonna go on grazing here yeah, that's insane. Every once that's... in a while, there is this dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you think I fired... it... Go ahead. Oh, I fired bear bangers when they've been like outside my tent, and and sometimes that works and it, like scares them off and they gallop. But other times, I'm like, I'm not even gonna fire a bear banger because. I'm worried that this is just like they're skittish and it's going to end up galloping into me. Like it'll just freak out and run at me rather yeah. than away. So sometimes I've been like, I'm just going to make myself as small as possible. Um, so this thing doesn't come trample me or get out of the way of it, whatever I can do. Like, I don't know how well using bear spray on something like that will do. I'm not sure. It might just make it crazy, like a bull in a <laughs> ring with a matador if you tried to shoot it with bear spray. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to try that. I haven't tried that Yeah.
0: Yeah, no no kidding. Um, yeah, I was just kind of thinking, like, those two out of the 100, it must have been, like, close to rut or, you know, breeding season for them or something for them to be, get that aggressive maybe.
2: Or what Well, were you thinking? I've had aggressive ones in different seasons. So, like, even right in the spring in June when, like, the ice is just melting, I had an aggressive one. And then I've also had another one that would be more, like, towards the rut at the end of the summer. Um, I do think they are more aggressive. Like, I have seen that just observing them. Will it be like a herd of thirty of them? I've seen like I filmed them in the in the September as I've been canoeing, where the males are like uh, charging into each other and they're like butting heads. So you can see in the fall that they are getting stuff among themselves. And I would think that yeah, all things being equal, that is when you'd want to be more cautious around them in, in the fall. Um, they seem to be more aggressive. At that. But once one of the scary encounters I had with them was actually in the spring, and that one might have been partly because. I was on the Mackenzie River in the Northwest Territories and one was like, it was actually in the forest. So even though I was north of the Arctic Circle in the Western Arctic, there's still like black spruce and tamarack, I can tremble it and grow all the way up almost to the shores of the Beaufort Sea. And normally they're out on the Arctic tundra, just grazing around in the open. So you could see one from like a mile away, so long as there isn't fog. But this one was, it kind of wandered into the bush and it was very thick and it I think it just kind of stumbled into my tent without even knowing it was there because it was in such a thicket and that probably spooked it and made it more aggressive than what otherwise have been the case. Actually, that's one of the things I've noticed about them is that they're actually kind of dopey (laughs) and which is not usually what I would say about a wild animal, but they're actually kind of easy to sneak up on. And there've been many times when I've been going up a river where I'm, you know, traveling against the current. So I'm moving at a snail's pace and there'll be one on a bank, like on a bank, you know, browsing on some arctic willow or some alder bushes. And it won't even notice me until I'm like three feet from it. And then it looks up and it's like, oh, where did this mysterious thing come from? And I'm like, you know, normally most wild animals, like moose or deer, they would they would hear you or smell you a long way out up to them. But for some reason, I think partly because they're so big and they have um, few, they're not used to having a lot of predators eating them, that they don't really tend to be as wary as others. And you can come right up to them before they notice you, which was part of the problem in the dark, I think, when that one just kinda of stumbled into my tent. It didn't really think of anything being there. It got a little more aggressive and it was a, it was a particularly large one as well. So it was probably used to like getting it its own way. It was like, Oh, who's this person? I I think we can drive them off. No, no, go the other way, Mr. Moxox. So that was a little bit worrisome. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> Man, awesome.
1: Uh- do you have got some Balls to be getting like three feet away from a musk ox in the middle of nowhere, I gotta say that that's pretty
2: wild. Just, to, uh... I, I didn't want to, like, I wouldn't normally do that, but when you're traveling up river, you don't have a choice because it's like I can't rest. Like, if I take off this paddle or off this pole for even a second, the current is just coming in a hard one progress, is going to take me back down river, right? Um, so when you're going up river, you sometimes don't have a choice. Like, if you're going down river, then it's easy. Like if I see a muck socks and I'm going downriver, I can just kind of, you know, move over to the other bank or zigzag around it or I can slow down and let it move out of the way. But when you're going up river, I mean, it's it's, it's a struggle forever. So you don't really have a choice. And it, I'm definitely like a little bit nervous about it. Like, oh, I wish it wasn't there. But what okay. can I do? I'm just going to try to go faster and get away. No, yeah, right?
1: yeah. That, that that makes a little bit more sense now. I, I, uh, I somehow – some way thought you were like portaging past this thing but if you're uh yeah if you're going up river uh, that that gives you a little bit more of a, a safety buffer there for sure
2: well and after after the one time where one almost came and like charged right into me like this huge aggressive was snorting like crazy it was kind of like um like it was pawing at the ground um, like as if it was going to charge the bull I mean in the middle it woke me up the sound of it snorting was so loud outside my tent after that I was like, oh man, for the next like two weeks, I was like, like I'd been sleeping soundly in the wilderness before that point. But then for the next two weeks, like I was like really um, worried everywhere I'd put my tent. I'd be like, oh if I saw like just a herd in the distance, like a mile away, I'd be like, no. I mean, I'm just gonna push on because I don't want to stop here if they're around, or I'd try to sleep on an island, or uh, often I couldn't, but I would try to select my sites like wherever I thought it was a little more defensible, like if I had a boulder on one side of me or just some sort of cover. Um, because that one had kind of freaked me out so much. I didn't really want to sleep anywhere near them after that.
0: Right on. And then I wanted to kind of switch gears here and uh, talk about kind of f- food. Like with, with Panoramic, we do a lot of like hunting, fishing, camping, and, and we do a lot of cooking and, and eating obviously as well. So I kind of want to dabble into some of the food choices and not only that, like maybe some recommendations for people that are doing um, like a high calorie trip, canoe trip or what have you. But what, like, what kind of stuff are you packing in your pack? And not only that, are you doing a bit of fishing on your way too to get that fresh meat?
2: It depends. I mean, I fish a lot on certain expeditions. It, it just depends what kind of expedition I'm doing. Um, if I'm looking to explore or some sort of archaeology project, then fishing is usually something I do a lot of because I like to fish and I like to eat fish. Uh, but, you know, for like the journey alone across the Arctic, that was different. That was really a race against the seasons because – I was racing against the winter, so I really didn't have time to do anything other than to just paddle and portage, and I was I was relying on like energy bars and high-calorie protein bars just to keep me going, like fuel-wise. But yeah, normally my because my expeditions are a little more um, rigorous, I don't really have the luxury of like you know stopping for lunch or. Stopping fist, I just have to eat food on the fly all the time so that's why I rely so heavily on power bars and granola bars and cliff bars and I try to get like the biggest variety as possible like try to get the biggest variety of ingredients in my diet I mean there's not a whole lot of variety in power bars to start with but I'll get like some that have kale in them a lot of them have like peanut butter and um, some with dried fruit and I use like try to cover um, as many different Um, varieties as I can get and I ration them out like maybe 10 a day and then I'll eat them every every almost every um every 35 minutes 40 minutes I'll eat a bar and uh throughout the day like I'm just eating them continuously as I'm moving because I don't want to stop and then I I sort of intersperse with that dried fruit a little bit of dried fruit not a lot and um a little bit of trail mix maybe as well as like nuts. Like, I have a lot of, of uh, like really high calorie nuts like cashews or uh, sometimes I'll get a dried fruit like goji berries, which have a lot of uh, calories in them. And I kind of spurs that out. So I'm snacking like almost constantly on these expeditions because I'm burning so many calories. And I just sort of have that laid out in the bottom of my canoe so that I can just reach down and snack uh, throughout like 10 hours or 12 hours and just keep me fueling through that whole 10, 12 hours just to have the food right there at my feet and I grab it and I don't waste any time. If I'm hiking or portaging, then I just stuff it in my pockets so I can just pull it out and snack as I'm going. And then because the time is so important, critical to what I do, the only meal that I would eat with a fork or that needs any sort of preparation or cooking, that's at night. And that's just before I crawl into my tent for the night. And that's a freeze dried meal. And I just, you know, boil the water, add it into the pouch, cooks in 15 minutes and I eat it. And there's a couple, I like backpackers, pant, um, and air. Those are the two brands I use the most. And I like forever young Mac and cheese, vegetable, lasagna, the sweet and sour chicken, my go-to meals. I don't do a lot of variety. I just go to like the high calorie ones and I'll buy like 50 of them. (laughs) Sometimes I go into like an outdoor store and I clean out their entire stock. And I'm like, yep, I'm taking all these. And they're like, oh, man, you should really look into, like, diversifying your diet. But I'm like, no, no, I need them. So that's usually what I do in terms of food. What What were the two brand names there again? Oh, the two companies that I buy from are um, most often I use Backpackers Pantry and Alpine Air. Those are the two best ones in my opinion. And I don't, I've never had any kind of sponsorship with them. So that's just me um, buying those because I think they taste better than the others. And they seem to cook really reliably. Which is because sometimes you get like a freeze-dried meal, you add your boiling water, you seal it up, and then you open it like 20 minutes later and you'll find like a little bit in the center of not fully cooked. And that's always such a disappointment when it's your only meal of the day <laughs> other than power bars. So I like those two because I find they're pretty reliable. That, that drops it
1: down from gourmet for sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious here, uh, especially like on this 4,000 kilometer journey that you did. Obviously, there's a lot of planning that go that goes into uh, an expedition like that. But how many days worth of food would you uh, would you carry on you on on these journeys before you have to hit a cache oh, okay. or so,
2: somebody had to fly you something in? Yeah, so the longest I can go really on my own without a resupply would be maximum would be two months, um, assuming that I'm not like that. But that's like continuous travel, so it, it's obviously totally different if you just want to stay in one spot and fish or hunt or something, then that's a game changer. But assuming you're actually like trying to put in like significant miles every day, like you're traveling 50 kilometers and it's more like a marathon race. then the farthest I could go would be like 60 days. That's like the most I could carry on my person um, or in my canoe rather. And to do that, I carry two different like watertight plastic barrels. And the barrels are just loaded right to the rim with food Uh, when fully loaded Each barrel weighs about 55 pounds. So it's about 110 pounds worth of food total, which would last me for 60 days, assuming I supplement it with some wild berries and maybe the occasional fish. And even then, like, I'm not getting enough food. Like, I'm definitely burning more calories than I'm consuming. So it's like a given that I'm still going to lose a significant amount of weight at that pace and with that amount of calories. But that would be like the longest I could go. That's not very comfortable, though. Um, I can tell you that, like, I wouldn't want to go. I would prefer to get resupplied, like, once a month rather than push it all the way out for two months. Um, one, because the diet is pretty bland, and also um, it, it makes the start, like, that's a lot of carry, um, especially when you're portaging in places where there's no trail, like, there's no solid ground beneath your feet. It's all, like, sphagnum moss and muskeg, uh, so it's a lot of extra weight to carry, and you can't carry it once. Um, but that's that would be the longest I would go without a resupply, about two months.
1: That is insane. So you're you're carrying around
2: like 600 energy bars with you? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it depends. Like ideally, if I'm burning a lot of calories, I would try to eat 10 energy bars a day. And each bar might have 250 to 300 calories in it. So that's quite a lot. Um, but there are other expeditions I do where I'm like, I just don't have the space and cut it down. So I might only have seven uh, energy bars a day or eight energy bars a day, just because uh, space constraints make it impossible to carry any more. That is often the case as well.
0: Yeah, that is that is super crazy. And then, do you have a craving for a certain type of food or drink when you get back to, from one of these expeditions? When you're out in
2: the out in the bush for that many days, like, do you have something that you crave? uh yes. I tend to so after being out there for a few months, my cravings tend to go in the direction of whatever's not in my diet. So. For me, that tends to be like any sort of dairy, like oh, I, I would just love a bowl of cereal or, or yogurt because of course there's none of that in my diet at all. Um, that's usually what I end up craving. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I would just I would love to have a nice pizza, like oh, pizza, I could go for that right now. Um, and then every <laughs> once in a while, I get like a strange craving, like oh, you know, something that you something like a blueberry pie or something like that. Um, but sometimes it's just something simple. Like after my journey alone across the Arctic, I think the thing I wanted most was, well, yogurt and bananas. <laughs> like <laughs> a lot of people think like you must want a steak or something. But I think that kind of craving goes away within a few weeks and your body just sorts, sort of wants like, uh, you know, this natri- new, nutritious food. So for me, it was like banana um, or yogurt or something like that. That seemed like the greatest luxury to me if I could get my hands on something like that at the end of one of my long journeys.
1: Um I, I'm kind of interested in too here, uh, you obviously have a wealth of knowledge on uh, wild edibles and uh, edible mushrooms and that sort of thing. Uh, what, what are some some of the wild edibles that you really take advantage of while you're either on these journeys or maybe just something that you uh, look forward to on just a short trip in the woods?
2: Well, in the Arctic and in the subarctic, um, it's definitely the wild berries uh, because they have the most energy at any sort of wild that you're going to find, wild uh, plant. Um, and they're easy to identify and they're usually super abundant. So you have everything going for you. They're at the right time of year. Oftentimes I'm in the spring and they're not ripe yet. But um, and like my favorite, like I love cloudberries. They're really big. They're really juicy. <laughs> yeah those are my favorite cloudberries. i love cloud berries in the north um but i also eat lingonberries, which a lot of people call mountain cranberries um crowberries bear berries are not my favorite i don't really like to the taste of them uh, i might eat one every once in a while uh, there's a lot of wild currants and gooseberries and if you're familiar with berries everyone recognizes like arctic blueberries or um, the odd raspberry or strawberry little tiny ones out on the arctic tundra. so i eat all of that and um definitely that's the best food source there is in terms of wild food other than like fish and stuff uh because you can come into like these giant berry patches on the tundra where there's like thousands and thousands of them uh so it's easy to gather where you can just sit down exhaust it and just pile them into your mouth and I tell you after weeks of granola bars having all these berries is like flavor overload it's that, great <laughs> i love it
1: that's one thing that like uh that i always found really interesting and the time i spent as a uh... The helicopter pilot out in the the tundra was just the the amount of berries out there. Like you have this super rich food source, almost that that is just thriving in this really extreme environment. And uh, somehow, like you said, there's just these massive crops of them, almost that you come across. And it's just it's it's remarkable in in my mind that uh, that's something that that plentiful and that rich in. And uh, like you said, energy and, and vitamins, nutrients is able to thrive out there like that.
2: Yeah, it's only for a very brief season. Like the cloudberries, they're usually only ripe for like at most two weeks. And then they start to fade really quickly and get uh, two weeks are like glorious. It's like the best time of year to be there because you can just eat so many of these berries. And I mean, when you think of like the grizzly bears in the Arctic, that's mostly what they're eating. They're just eating these massive amounts of berries and uh, blackberries as well. So, yeah, I mean you think of how big they are and how much they weigh. So I guess if you eat enough of them, you can keep yourself going for them at least.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. We, uh, we actually had another guest, Steve, uh, this guy named Steve, that was, a uh, um, he was a guide in the Yukon. So he would be out in the bush for X amount of days. And we kind of asked him the same sort of question. And he said, Fru- uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And I kind of always thought it'd be like red meat, like a steak or a burger or something. But if you were, I, my next kind of question that, kind of uh get to the end of our podcast here but do you if you were dropped off somewhere um and you had to take five pieces of your gear could you maybe give us
2: five of the most important pieces you wouldn't leave home without ah well i mean i definitely would want more than five because <laughs> i don't know if i could cover everything i would need in five but if i only have <laughs> five like it's some sort of robinson crusoe scenario uh i would definitely want my swiss army knife i use that that's like my go-to knife This is just a swiss army knife because i like the saw on it I find the saw really useful and um there's just a lot of little gadgets stuck into my swiss army knife like tweezers have saved me a few times and uh yeah i mean that's a good little thing to have so and it's nice and light which is a good consideration if i've got to travel far distances put it in my pocket um the other ones i'd probably want something to start a fire with and the most practical one would just be flint in steel uh, or Flint, um, because that should last however long I'm, I'm out there and it's not going to run out. And if it gets wet, it'll still work. So that would definitely be number two. I think number three, um, I, I probably want some water in. Um, I mean, that, yeah, that'd probably be pretty important. Just something to boil water in um, that lets me cook and purify water and obviously a hot drink, you know, psychologically, that would be a big boost. Uh, four. Like I'm assuming that are we counting like clothing? Like you're not gonna make it, or because if there's if clothes count, then I would definitely have to put some clothing into the mix. But if clothing is just kind of a given, that's a freebie. You don't have to add that.
0: That's that's your freebie. That's your freebie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I
2: have clothes. Okay. So that's good. And I seem like I have a full thing. Like you know, I have boots on my feet or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what else would I take? um I guess it depends what I'm like. If I'm just surviving in one spot, that's different. If I have those three things, I should be pretty good. I'm a good start. I mean, obviously, it depends what you're you're actually trying to accomplish. If it's like, oh, you have to catch food, then maybe some fishing tackle would be useful. Um, But I, I don't know if that's necessarily what I would be doing. Like if it's also like you're just trying to move or make distance, then I'd want my canoe and my paddle with me. Um, But there's a lot of little things that I wouldn't want to lose out there, like sunglasses. Those are important. want to protect your eyes if you're staring at the water for like 13, 14 hours. Uh, The glare can can do a number on you. So that's one thing I always remember to pack two of is my sunglasses in case I lose a pair. If you had nothing else, an emergency blanket would be useful because that, you could rig that up as a tarp. You could make a shelter out of it. Um, you could recover yourself in it. You could do a lot of things with it if you had to. And they're just, they're, I'm always big about traveling the small you pocket. Uh, so that would maybe be my last item, an emergency blanket. That's cool. Chase, what would you take? What, was one, what would be your one item? My one item?
1: Oh, man. Uh, put me down to one, hey? I would I would just have to say like a, like a good multi-tool
0: yeah for sure a good knife or a good multi-tool yeah you i think the same thing i think it'd have to be a knife or multi-tool or oh or how about a hatchet some kid survived up north with just a hatchet for a while um so i guess next question here adam i guess uh and chase unless you have something else you can kind of butt in but uh what's happening next what do you got next on the horizon in the next uh, little while good
2: question uh i haven't fully formulated my plans for 2021 um, but I will have a book coming out in October, and maybe if COVID's over, I'll be able to come to Manitoba. Because uh, for all my books, I've had three that come out. I've come to Manitoba to do uh, free book events, book talks and whatnot. So I hope, I hope, fingers crossed, by October I might be able to come to Manitoba when my book comes out and do a book launch there. Uh, if that doesn't happen, it would have to be a virtual thing. But anyways, I have a new book in October. It's about an expedition I did. It's a bit of a mystery. Like if you like uh, spooky stories and Sasquatch, you're going to like this book because that's kind of what it's about. So that comes out in October. Nice. What's the title of that? Uh, it's called, I don't know if I should say the title. I haven't, haven't reviewed it. Okay, perfect. it
0: yet. We'll, <laughs> but if you we'll follow Graham,
2: I'll, I'll announce it in the spring maybe. So there you okay, go. Perfect. Yeah.
0: Well, right on. And I guess uh, it's coming down to the, what we kind of call our round table or final thoughts. Uh, Chase, if you want to lead us in that yeah, yeah figured I, out.
1: uh I just want to say thank, thanks thanks uh, Adam for joining us here tonight it really feels like we just barely scratched the surface with you and man I, I feel like I could go probably on like a 4000 kilometer journey with you and and still have questions to ask you uh, by the end of it so um i I hope we have uh time to chat with you in the future sometime again and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that that book coming out in october and i'm hoping this dang virus has uh hit the dusty old trail by then and we can uh, see you launch in, in
2: person in manitoba here absolutely yeah you'll have to have me back on the show in the fall we can talk all about my new book so that'll be good yeah for
0: sure and adam do you have any final thoughts before we take off here
2: no uh, thank you very much uh, great questions
0: yeah, for sure. And uh, I'd just like to say a couple of things here yeah, just to kind of repeat what Chase said. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, I have one last question for you before we let you go. But is there a river in Canada called
2: the Little Owl River? <laughs> there is if you read my book. <laughs> is it official? Uh, I don't think it's official. No. Oh, OK. Well, there's a river, but it's in Manitoba, actually. Oh,
0: really? Yeah. I'm going to have to do some Googling. Okay, well, right on, Adam. Thanks for coming on our show, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Episode number seventy-two with Adam Schultz. Man, that was super cool to have him sit down and chat with us about some of his journeys and adventures he's had across Canada. Um, there's a lot more things that, like we t- kind of said in the episode, that we could have talked about, um, and more things that we hope to get him on and talk about in the future. Um, if you haven't, uh, if you still don't know who the hell we're talking about. Go check him out on Instagram and Facebook. He's got a couple of good pages there with, with what he's done and what he's doing kind of in the future, along with um, links to his books uh, and to his documentary Alone Across the Arctic, which is, this, I think, his newest documentary, which is super good. I watch it on uh, Amazon Prime. Chase, what's going on over there? Do you have any new exciting news about the store? I do, but
1: first, I just want to say, just like that podcast episode was phenomenal, man. What a super interesting dude, and just like some surreal moments that that he lives out there, like talking about walking past Mus- ox at like three feet and along the rivers and stuff like that. So super cool. But yes, we got some uh, interesting stuff happening in our store right now. If you guys haven't seen yet. You got to go check it out, panoramicoutdoors.com. And we have some new toques up in our store, some white and some green toques. We also have a few different styles of new hats with our goose logo on them. Uh, We got brown, blue. We got some new moose hats in red and our gray kind of snapback meshback hats. So check those out. Also, if you're uh, looking for... A gift for somebody else don't maybe don't know somebody's size or you don't know what they like we also have e-gift cards available on our website Uh, you can pick the amount that you want to purchase for somebody and uh, all that's done over the interweb so check that out all available on our website underneath the store icon also before I forget and uh, get out of here check out our new blog on our website uh we have hack story up there about his elk hunt this fall and uh we also have tristan's blog up there on his latest puppy update so uh follow along with that check him out a couple great stories on there and certainly check it out for
0: more recent stories that are going to be popping up there yeah that's super cool and the other thing i'm going to mention before we do take off is i did we did a Instagram post where there was this nice young lady holding a nice trout. We asked what kind of trout it was and what kind of lake, and it was actually a splake at two mile. So, if you want to claim your gift, there was one person I believe that answered it first. Throw us a DM and we will send you our gift. If not, everyone take care, get outside as much as you can, and be safe.